are listening to Cannabis Health Radio. Here are your hosts, Ian Jessup and Corey Yelland. Welcome to another episode of Cannabis Health Radio. I'm Ian Jessup. And I'm Corey Yelland. Our guest today is a board-certified neurologist and psychopharmacology researcher and one of America's leading researchers into medical cannabis. He has held faculty positions at Montana and Washington State Universities and is a former chairman of the International Association for Cannabinoid Medicines. And joining us from Washington State is Dr. Ethan Russo. Dr. Russo, thanks for joining us. We greatly appreciate it. Well, thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. What's the story behind your career path into cannabis? Well, gee, we could take an hour on that, but the short version is um, I was in neurology practice in Missoula, Montana. I'd been there seven years, about 1990, and I found myself in a bit of a rut in that uh, emotionally it was very taxing to be seeing day-by-day patients with uh, severe neurologic conditions uh, where everything we were trying wasn't uh, helping too much. And I was giving increasingly toxic drugs to these patients over time with less and less benefit. Uh, And it occurred to me that perhaps there were herbal alternatives. That led me to uh, pursuit of ethnobotanical treatments, especially of migraine and other conditions, uh, which led me into the rainforest in Peru uh, for about three months on sabbatical in 1995. But when I got back, uh, in addition to my dedication to the idea of herbal alternatives, I quickly became embroiled in the cannabis controversy, let's call it. Uh, Subsequently, I uh, made attempts over the next few years to formally study cannabis by getting a supply from the government to investigate in the treatment of migraine. But I got stonewalled. By 1999, I had approval from the Food and Drug Administration to do a study of this type. But the National Institute on Drug Abuse, which has a stranglehold on the supply of cannabis in this country for clinical studies, would not supply it. In the interim, I had become an advisor to GW Pharmaceuticals in their early stages of developing cannabis-based medicines as pharmaceuticals. And then in 2003, they asked me to come on full-time. And so I was uh, a senior medical advisor for them for, for 11 years, which included uh, participation in the development of Sativex and Epidiolex, uh, two cannabis-based medicines for a variety of uh, conditions. So I was uh, helping to direct clinical trials and manage those. And subsequently, for the last three years, I've worked for another uh, research and development company called Phytex, who is investigating therapeutic applications of the endocannabinoid system. So that includes cannabis, but additionally other herbal and lifestyle approaches uh, to treat uh, these kinds of diseases. 
Now, Ethan, you have described the cannabis plant as a gift to humanity. We'd like to use your time with us today to talk about how cannabis improves our health. Can you give us the layman's perspective of why we need cannabis to be healthy? Sure. Well, just as background, I I think the real issue surrounds why or how does this plant affect humans? Well, the actual uh, simple truth is that it taps into natural systems in our body that are related uh, to treatment of almost every type of illness. Now, that sounds crazy. People will say, oh, he thinks it's good for everything. Uh, I'm not quite saying that. But let's, let's understand the basics. We have in our bodies, especially in the brain, a receptor called CB1. That's cannabinoid 1. There are natural compounds in our bodies called endocannabinoids, endogenous cannabinoids. These are chemicals that are within our bodies and of all vertebrates that work on this receptor. That receptor is responsible for the high from THC, the main psychoactive component of cannabis, but also it is intimately involved in treatment of pain, whether someone will vomit or not, regulation of whether they will have seizures or not. Uh, It works in the gut both to help propel food and to manage uh, secretions. And we could go through every aspect of body function and find a role uh, for CB1, just about. There is additionally another receptor called CB2. It's mainly outside the brain. It uh, It's not a psychoactive receptor, but THC again stimulates it, and it is responsible for reducing inflammation and pain without the psychoactive side effects. But that's not all with cannabis. People make a big mistake if they think of THC as being the total story about how cannabis works. Another major component of cannabis, hopefully, it's not in every type of cannabis, but that is cannabidiol. Cannabidiol is a fascinating uh, component chemical in cannabis because it does not produce intoxication. Rather, it complements what THC does and can counteract some of the side effects of THC. For example, it also is a painkiller, analgesic, and anti-inflammatory, but it does it without creating a high it can reduce the anxiety that THC can produce. It actually is an antipsychotic. Uh, it's been used successfully in two clinical trials to treat schizophrenia. Uh, and it's quite an amazing drug in treating inflammatory conditions and some autoimmune conditions. Uh, so there's that. Beyond that, uh, people may be interested to know that these cannabinoids have no aroma. But cannabis quite clearly does, very strong aroma, and that comes from different chemicals called terpenoids. These are the essential oil components of cannabis, and while they're not unique to cannabis, they contribute to the effects of the cannabinoids through what we call synergy. That means a 
boosting of the effect. And that boosting can be that they increase pain control or reduce inflammation or, again, counteract side effects of THC. All of those things could be aspects of synergy. So that was a long-winded answer. Maybe we can go from there. Lots of information in that long-winded answer, though, Ethan. No, that was great because we always get emails from people who want to know about various aspects of cannabis. Can you tell me the difference between THC and THCA as well as CBD and CBDA? Right. The plant itself forms what are called cannabinoid acids. These are the precursors, the chemicals that come before. Uh, So one is THCA, tetrahydrocannabinolic acid. And um, similarly, CBD has a precursor, a forerunner in the plant in the raw form that's called CBDA, cannabidiolic acid. So normally what happens is the fresh plant is dried and then is heated um, to make uh, brownies, for example, or it's heated in the form of vaporization uh, or smoking. That drives off a carbon dioxide molecule from these cannabinoid acids. So CBDA becomes CBD. THCA becomes THC. This is called decarboxylation. To produce the THC and and CBD, um, that kind of heating is a necessary step. However, the precursor molecules, the THCA and the CBDA, have very pronounced therapeutic properties of their own. Now, A lot of people think this is a new thing, but actually raw forms of cannabis have been used therapeutically for thousands of years. And we have historical documentation of this. It's just that uh, as a byproduct of prohibition, uh, we keep forgetting uh, the value that, that cannabis has therapeutically, and we're having to relearn a lot of things that were well known to our ancestors In this instance, THCA has very pronounced anti-inflammatory properties. Um, It does some things that THC does not, but it it also does some things that THC does and perhaps even a little better. It again can reduce nausea um, and uh, may be useful in chemotherapy treatment. With uh, CBDA, uh, we know even a little bit less, but... As a a drug uh, to prevent vomiting, it's actually uh, about 100 times more potent than CBD is. Uh, And that's something that hasn't been tested in humans at all. Uh, So clearly, while we know a tremendous amount about cannabis as medicine, there's still a great deal uh, yet that we need to demonstrate formally uh, using clinical trials. Ethan, is it accurate to say that CBD, uh, if people find it sedating, it's because the plant has a lot of myrcene in it? Yes. That's uh, not the only explanation, but uh, we know very well that when CBD is taken as a pure drug, that it is non-sedating, except perhaps in extraordinarily high doses 
in conjunction with other drugs. Um, an example there would be uh, when can, uh, cannabidiol, CBD, is taken with a drug called Clobazam for treatment of severe seizures, it will increase the amount of um, a metabolite called N-dismethylclobazam, which is very sedating. But very few people out there have had the experience of using pure cannabidiol. Rather, they get it um, from something that's extracted from the plant in one form or another. Now, it is the case that most chemovars, chemical varieties of cannabis... Uh, that have cannabidiol are also very high in myrcene, but it isn't, does not have to be that way. It's just a function of recent breeding uh, of cannabis. Myrcene is a terpenoid, and it has a, a soporific, sleep-inducing effect, a sort of narcotic effect. When taken with THC, it's largely responsible for the phenomenon called couch lock. That is where people uh, smoke or vaporize cannabis with a lot of myrcene and THC, and then they can't move off of the couch. But uh, again, uh, very clear experiments, even with relatively high doses of pure CBD, show that it is not sedating. Rather, if anything, it's, it's alerting uh, as compared to THC. Dr. Russo, there are many methods of consumption of cannabis, smoking, edibles, cannabis oil, vaporizing. In your opinion, what is the best method of consumption for health improvement? Sure. Generally speaking, when people are using cannabis um, medically, they most often are treating a chronic disease. And under those conditions, it's going to be a long time or perhaps indefinitely they have to, that they have to take the medicine. Under those conditions, the best approach is going to be an oral preparation or uh, an oromucosal preparation. The latter means that they um, would uh, take a liquid in the mouth and absorb some through the mucous membranes of the mouth. Um, it is still the case that most people inhale cannabis as their mode of delivery. However, I've never been a proponent of smoking anything as medicine. Uh, if people need a rapid application uh, to treat a symptom that comes up, such as a sudden spasm, then certainly they could inhale, preferably by vaporization, which, although it's not perfect, uh, presents fewer issues like lung irritation uh, that comes from smoking. How do we know if we're consuming cannabis for our health, for various health issues? How do we know what is the correct dose to take? Well, that's a really tough one, I'm afraid. And again, because of prohibition, um, we don't have the levels of quality control that might be available for another pharmaceutical or even a regulated um, uh, nutraceutical, for example. As it is now, most of the labs out there that are analyzing cannabis are actually doing so illegally because they don't have Schedule One permits that allow them to hold cannabis. Um, additionally, uh, it's the case almost always uh, out there in this country that 
um, if there is a lab analysis on the cannabis that someone is buying, it almost always is confined to the amount of THC and perhaps CBD. It's very rare that um, you get a full profile to indicate what the terpenoid content is, which will greatly affect uh, the kinds of things that the cannabis will do, how it will affect an individual, and how relatively therapeutic or less therapeutic it's going to be for a person with a specific condition. So the answer is that it's very tough to get that information. What I like to emphasize to people is... We know a lot about what people need. We need to get it to the point where this kind of information is available to the consumer, and that applies to patients as well as those who might be using uh, cannabis on a so-called recreational basis. Dr. Russo, could we get you to um, go over some of the main terpenoids and what some of their qualities are? Sure. Why don't we start with uh, four uh, that I think are the most important. We've talked a little bit about myrcene, and I have to say I've seen a lot of analyses, and far and away, it's the most prevalent one uh, that we're seeing in raw cannabis and even in a lot of extracts. Now, it does have therapeutic properties. It has some muscle relaxant effects. It has some anti-inflammatory effects, but often it's too much of a good thing because of this sedative effect uh, that's really pronounced when it's combined with THC. More therapeutic, I believe, are some of the others. One uh, that we don't see as much as I think we should is called limonene. Now, that sounds familiar because that is the main scent ingredient in citrus rinds. And it's also what you smell when you go down the uh, supermarket aisle for the detergents. To our brains, the citrus scent is equated with a couple of things. One is cleanliness. Another one is happiness. And that is not just a trick our mind is playing. Uh, limonene has a very pronounced antidepressant effect, as well as being an excellent cleaning agent. It has antibiotic properties. Uh, so having that in cannabis is going to brighten the effect and improve the mood, which is a good thing for a person with a chronic illness. Another one that we don't see enough of is called alpha-pinene. Again, it sounds familiar because this is the primary component of the scent of pine needles. The Japanese have a really interesting concept. They call forest bathing. What this means is walking in the forest to boost your brain power and feel rejuvenated. There's a reason for that, particularly in the, the Northwest. When we walk in the forest, we're going to be exposed to a lot of pinene. It is really good for clearing the head. But we know exactly how this works. Pinene has an effect as an acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. That's a fancy way of saying that it interferes with the function of an enzyme that breaks down acetylcholine in our brains. Acetylcholine is the main memory molecule. What is the main or one of the, the well-known side effects of THC? It is short-term memory impairment where the person says, uh, what were you saying? That kind of thing. That can be 
pretty much totally eliminated if there is pinene to counteract the effect of THC to produce the short-term memory impairment. Uh, so the pinene, in addition to boosting memory, is also a very powerful anti-inflammatory, again, an antibiotic and uh, really uh, a good component to have. The fourth one I'd like to mention um, is beta-caryophylline. Caryophylline is a fascinating terpenoid because it's not just a terpenoid, it's a cannabinoid as well. You will recall we mentioned the CB2 receptor, that's the non-psychoactive but anti-inflammatory receptor. Caryophylline works directly on it. So it is a very powerful painkiller and anti-inflammatory without intoxicating properties. Another thing it can do is drugs that have the same kind of profile have been used to treat addictions, say to heroin, cocaine, even uh, cigarettes. Uh, so this is something that we would like to actively research in relation to using um, cannabis that would, say, be high in, in cannabidiol and high in caryophylline to treat addiction to other compounds. Uh, I think this is an extremely attractive goal uh, in research and certainly one that we need given the opioid epidemic that we're facing in this country. Dr. Russo, what is your view of the state of cannabis research in the United States today? Well, I'm afraid it's pretty dismal. Uh, Frankly, we're light years behind the rest of the world. If you analyze the literature on clinical trials that have been done on cannabis-based medicines, it's dominated by the company for whom I used to work, GW Pharmaceuticals. Uh, It explains why I had to work for a foreign company for 11 years. I just could not pursue the clinical research on cannabis that I wanted to in this country. The studies that have been done on cannabis in the USA have been a handful. They have been very limited in scope. Uh, with small numbers of patients for very short periods of time. They have done nothing to advance a cannabis-based medicine towards an FDA approval. But this has been for a reason. It's because the government wanted it that way. It is a system that was designed to fail, and in that failure, it succeeded very well. One of the questions uh, we get asked often on this program, and Corey will confirm this, is what strain do I use? And you talk about the differences between sativas and indicas. Is that really nonsense? It is nonsense, and we're going to define our terms better. I'm going to advocate that we drop the the term strain. Of course, it's very ingrained in uh, the lexicon. But um, strains apply to things like bacterias and viruses. Strictly speaking, from a scientific point of view and botany, there are no strains. Rather, I think that we should be talking about, and it's a handful, uh, a mouthful, um, we should be talking about chemovars, chemical varieties of cannabis. Either way, whether it's a variety or a chemovar of cannabis, What it will be good for uh, really depends. 
we have this other nomenclature that's prevalent out there of sativa and indica. Now, the way that people talk about it, a sativa is a head high and a uh, indica is a body high. However, these are very confusing. There has been debate for um, 250 years now about whether cannabis comes from one species or two or three or more species. And you'll never get agreement uh, from the botanists on that one. We know that all the types of cannabis can interbreed, but that alone doesn't decide whether there's one or more species. Additionally, the current state of breeding in the USA is that it's a mishmash of this and that. Um, so you hear that this is a hybrid or this is 70% sativa and 30% indica. That doesn't help the consumer at all. What the consumer needs to know is, how is this going to affect me when I take it? And to know that, it really helps a great deal to have uh, an accurate and thorough analysis uh, to see what's in it. And I, I'm confident that when we have this kind of data, I can tell a person, uh, reasonably speaking, what to expect from the experience. Of course, that's going to depend on the dose as well. But uh, if they have a particular condition that they're trying to treat, we would uh, then be able to steer them in the right direction. Uh, perhaps try this one and that one, but avoid this other one because it doesn't have the profile that we think is going to be most helpful to you. I think your term chemovar is brilliant. Yeah, I, I, like that. I, I think it's perfect because I thought maybe I was stupid that I didn't know all the various strains and what they did. And it just becomes well, so damn confusing. Well, it's worse than that. Um, because these these names are worse than useless. Unfortunately, we don't have truth in advertising in the industry. I know for fact that there are situations in which growers uh, have driven to the dispensary and on the way they said, well, you know, Blue Dream is popular these days and that's what they put on the label. Uh, and if you get uh, a certain named variety from one or more dispensaries and look at them, uh, they don't look the same necessarily. They may not smell the same and they may have totally different effects. So, again, it's a very ingrained custom now in the industry, uh, these, these names, sometimes very off-color, <laughs> but uh, we won't repeat on the air, but I just think it's misleading. It isn't helpful from a therapeutic standpoint and just adds to the confusion. Um, if, right. we, if we were to have a strain called the Russo Rush and it was grown in Seattle, it was also grown in Florida, it was grown in Toronto, and it was grown in France, the chemical makeup would be different in all of it, wouldn't it? Well, some. First of all, I'd resist the temptation to name anything after me. <laughs> but beyond that, uh, you raise a very interesting point, and that is, for the most part, the composition uh, that will be produced by a given cannabis plant is a function of its genetic endowment. In other words, uh, a given chemover uh, is genetically programmed uh, and if it were cloned, vegetatively propagated, you would get the same profile. 
Now, it would be altered by environmental conditions. For instance, there would be things you could do with the proper light and soil that would increase the yield. Generally speaking, though, the proportions of one component to another would stay the same. There are definitely some things you could do in growing to knock down the production value or concentrations, but genetics are far and away uh, the most important part of uh, what the plant will produce. And then again, depending on the husbandry, you could improve things a little or you could make things a lot worse. Dr. Russo, when you uh, were working with GW Pharmaceuticals, um, recently, I've, to, to digress here a bit, recently I've, I, I seem to go in uh, waves of what people write me about, and lately it's migraines and Parkinson's. Were there any uh, studies done on migraines or Parkinson's and cannabis? Uh, much to my chagrin, it's been 20 years now. I've been trying to do a formal study of cannabis and migraine. It still hasn't happened. Um, maybe next year. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. But um, no, it, uh, there have been surveys and some observational studies. I know from spending all this time on this issue that I haven't kept count. I, I think it's probably somewhere about 800 patients I've heard from uh, their experiences with cannabis for migraine and the plain old fact is that it works. But we've known that for 900 years. Uh, Back in the 19th century, it was extensively used uh, by some of the fathers of American neurology, also European uh, neurology, uh, to successfully treat uh, migraine, both acutely and as a preventive. I have no doubt that it works. It's just we need to Prove that in a formal sense, uh, which in modern American medicine requires randomized controlled trials. With Parkinson's, I'm glad you asked because it is a very prevalent condition, one that uh, is typical of neurology and that uh, the treatments that we have for it are very uh, very, um, what would you say? I mean, they're just not, um, they're not uniformly successful. They have a lot of side effects. Uh, they don't uh, prevent progression of the disease. Uh, so, but cannabis clearly has something to offer here. But again, it's a bit of a long story. One of the fathers of uh, neurology uh, was Sir William Gowers in England. In the 19th century, he described a situation of a Parkinsonian patient uh, where giving cannabis, a cannabis-based medicine, what they called tincture of Indian hemp, over a long period of time seemed to stabilize the condition. There was also a report in about 2004 out of the Czech Republic. Um, a researcher named Venderova related uh, survey results. Now, usually we don't put a lot of stock in, in surveys on their own, but this one was extensive. There was a gentleman who had used what we think was raw cannabis orally over a long period of time to successfully treat his Parkinsonian symptoms. This was on uh, TV their equivalent of our 60 Minutes program. And apparently a lot of people did this. And um, looking at the survey results, they were able to find that when this 
apparently raw cannabis was taken orally over a long period of time, sometimes up to three months, that it would work for a variety of symptoms. The slow movement, the tremor, um, the whole panoply of difficulties with Parkinsonian uh, syndromes. So it may have been that they were using THCA or perhaps CBDA. That's something we need to work out. Uh, we know that THC on its own doesn't necessarily do so much. CBD um, certainly would add to the situation. It has what's called a neuroprotective effect over time. Um, uh, can help prevent da- brain damage from various causes. The bottom line is that if someone is going to try a cannabis-based medicine to treat Parkinson's disease, they should expect to experiment quite a bit. And they really, unlike some conditions where we see very rapid results, this is one in which they're going to really have to be persistent over a period of time to see if it really will help. Dr. Russo, there was a story in the paper this morning that synthetic marijuana is being blamed for nearly 160 overdoses in Lancaster County in Pennsylvania during a one-week period of this month. What is synthetic marijuana? Well, first, it's a misnomer. Uh, Those drugs have nothing to do with cannabis uh, at all. Um, We need to change that uh, straight away. What they are is drugs that are designed to work on the CB1 receptor, but there's a big difference. And this requires a little explanation. THC is what's called a weak partial agonist. That means it stimulates the CB1 receptor, but it's a weak bond there. In, in other words, it provides a gentle nudge, just like one of the endocannabinoids, anandamide, a natural substance in our bodies. These synthetic cannabinoids, in contrast, can be a hundred times more powerful and are what are called full agonists. So they're giving a massive shove against the receptor as opposed to this gentle nudge. Additionally, they have many off-target effects. We know that these synthetic cannabinoids can be responsible for cardiac damage, renal damage, so heart and kidney uh, failure uh, can result from use of these agents, and it has nothing to do with cannabis. So bottom line for me is those are genuinely dangerous drugs. Um, But why are people using them? They're using them because for the most part, a lot of these compounds are not readily identifiable when someone has a a drug test. Uh, They can be identified with advanced techniques. But again, I find this is a byproduct of prohibition. The same thing happened in alcohol prohibition. At that time, prohibition didn't eliminate problems with alcohol. It just exacerbated them because people were making bathtub gin or moonshine and getting poisoned. Uh, They were going blind from substitution of methanol instead of ethanol. Um, Unfortunately, our politicians just don't learn uh, the historical facts. And if uh, cannabis were made legal in a regulated uh, environment, 
I don't think we'd see as much problem with this move towards the synthetic cannabinoids, uh, which genuinely can be dangerous. The reason I raised it was because those people who are in a position to feel that cannabis is a dangerous drug, when they hear anything about synthetic marijuana, they'll equate it with uh, cannabis. Well, totally unfair. Totally unfair, absolutely. Let me ask you, in a final question that we ask a lot of experts on this program, where do you see legalization heading in the United States? I don't think much is going to happen for the next couple of years. Um, We've got a divergent uh, set of opinions between the executive and uh, the judicial, uh, I'm sorry, judicial and uh, the third branch of government, Congress. Um, There are people in Congress that are beginning to realize that uh, prohibition has been counterproductive and would like to see cannabis uh, taken out of its Schedule One forbidden uh, status. But we have a president who um, has been ambivalent about it at best and an attorney general who's actively opposed and, uh, the uh, liberalization of cannabis policy and is extremely ill-informed on the subject. Dr. Russo, it was a pleasure to talk to you. It was very, uh, very educational. Do you have a website uh, that you'd like to tell people about? The company website, Phytex, uh, P-H-Y-T-E-C-S dot com, uh, has uh, useful information. Um, additionally, if people are members of ResearchGate.net, if they went to my page uh, looking for Ethan Russo, under contributions, they would see access to a lot of my articles and book chapters. And uh, for the ones that are available, that, that would be free. It was great to talk to you. We'll have to do this again. Thanks very much. Oh, my pleasure. Take care then. Dr. Russo, thank you very, very much. Thank you. And that's another episode of Cannabis Health Radio. Thanks for listening, everyone. You've been listening to the Cannabis Health Radio podcast. Visit our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season 1 of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.